Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Talking France. As is the time-honored tradition on this podcast, we will bring you up to date with some of the most interesting news stories and changes happening in France, including wine. Yes, nothing is more synonymous with France than wine, but why is the government spending millions to turn thousands of bottles into cosmetics? And when it comes to vin, we'll try to get to the bottom of some of the fact and fiction around the drinking etiquette and rules you need to respect in France. From wine to health, this week we'll look at the ailments afflicting France's famed health system. And are you in the middle of a medical desert in France? We'll hear what the government plans to do for you. And if you've been to a beach on France's west or northern coast, you'll no doubt have spotted some concrete World War II bunkers still standing. We'll hear the fascinating story of why they're still there. On top of that, we'll find out about the man described as the French Shakespeare and tell you just what it costs to retire in France. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and with me once again will be the locals' foreign legion, editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and our politics expert John Litchfield. Hi Emma, hi Jen, thanks for being with us. I'm not sure I would be that great in the French Foreign Legion, to be honest. I mean, I won't even go camping. But also the Legion won't accept women, so I couldn't join the Legion even if I wanted to, which I very much don't because it sounds horrendous. I think you're better off out of the Foreign Legion. Emma, good to have you with us again. Any small talk before we crack on? We don't really do small talk, do we? Anything to say to each other? Have you two even said hello? Yeah, we've said hello. We've said hello to each other. Yeah, you, not so much. Okay, Emma, before we get stuck into the main meat of this podcast, we've just touched on a story today. We've had some lovely weather in the last few days, but this is actually something to be really worried about, and it's causing the French government concern already in February. What am I talking about? Yeah, I'm the same as you. I keep thinking, oh, isn't this lovely? It's sunny weather, as the native of a country where it's usually cold and rainy. But actually, it's not great that it's so mild and so sunny in February. And also, France has recently broken a record. This is the longest winter drought ever recorded. We've had 32 consecutive days with less than a millimetre of rain. It is forecast to rain later in the week. But having such a long dry spell this early is worrying because this is the time of year when normally groundwater supplies would be replenished ahead of the summer. And you'll remember, obviously, last summer we had a record drought. Water restrictions were in place across France. There were some places that even ran out of tap water altogether. And of course, there were those terrible wildfires, particularly in the southwest. To avoid that happening again, it needs to rain. And the next three months are going to be crucial for this. Where we are at the moment, the soil is unusually dry and the groundwater is very low. So this could be solved if we get a nice rainy March, April and May. But the government is already working on some kind of drought plan that essentially brings in certain types of water restrictions early in order to try and avoid what we had last summer. Indeed, it feels frightening. We're already talking about possible water restrictions in February. This is a story that we will keep an eye on not just on our website at thelocal.fr, but also in future podcasts throughout the spring. Now, Emma, you went to see a doctor this week. It wasn't an ordinary doctor. It was France's health minister. And you didn't go and see him for a checkup, did you? Uh, no, I went to see François Braun. He was a doctor. Um, he started his career as an emergency medicine doctor before going on to run the SAMU, which is the French Ambulance Service. And he's now the French Health Minister. He has been since July 2022. And he's inherited quite a to-do list because the French health system, in common with many other European systems, has a lot of problems. Yes, an ailing health system is not unique to France, of course. Germany's own health minister said recently the country's hospitals were in an emergency situation as he unveiled reforms. And 
talk of a health system on the brink is not new in France either. Emma, funnily enough, I interviewed a previous French health minister, Marisol Touraine, back in 2015. And back then, France's intelligence services were warning that hospital emergency awards were on the brink of social implosion. And there were tensions linked to a degradation in the quality of care. Touraine, the minister back then, was promising wide-scale reform back then. But these underlying problems with the French health service have not really been cured, have they? No, pretty much all of those problems are still there. And pretty much we're seeing the same language again, that, you know, a service on the brink of collapse, whatever. Some of this, I think, is a little bit of French hyperbole. But there are genuine problems in the health system, even though, I mean, it is still a good system. It is still ranked among the best in the world. But there are underlying structural problems problems. And they're basically the same as other countries. People are living longer, more people have chronic health conditions. And most health services, especially in Europe, were kind of created in the post-war periods. So in a lot of ways, they don't really reflect people's lives anymore. And the minister was kind of talking about this. And he said, actually, he's been having quite a lot of conversations with his counterparts in Europe, in the UK and in Canada, because pretty much all countries are grappling with the same problems. Mm, Health ministers in France over the years have highlighted problems in hospitals, hit by a lack of funding and a shortage of staff. And also, the country's poor record on preventative health, France is often accused of focusing on treatments rather than prevention, such as trying to persuade people to give up smoking. But Emma, you picked out one of the biggest problems with the French health service, one that many listeners may attest to. Yeah, I think the problem that probably affects most people on a daily basis is the shortage of what they call médecins généralistes, which are what we would call GPs or primary care doctors. And this is a, a real problem in many areas which they call desert médico, uh, medical deserts. And that basically means areas where there aren't enough generalists to cover the entire population. This is primarily a problem in the rural or sparsely populated areas, but it does affect cities too. There are parts of both Paris and Marseille that are classed as medical deserts because there are not enough GPs. And actually a survey in 2019 found that almost a third of French towns suffer from a shortage of GPs. And that means that firstly, it can be hard to register as a doctor, as your, what they call a médecin traitante, which is your sort of registered doctor. And that's a problem that particularly affects newcomers and foreigners in France. If you're trying to register for the first time, it can be hard to find someone who will sort of accept you. And secondly, even if you do have a doctor, it can be quite hard to get an appointment just because they're oversubscribed. Okay, so what is this current French government going to do about it? Um, yeah, as, as you say, there have been a lot of sort of attempts to solve this problem over the years. But it's quite a hard problem to solve because generalists, they're generally self-employed. They're what's called médecine libéraux, um, which is sort of self-employed doctors. So the government, they can't just like increase the GP allocation from an area. It's up to doctors where they set up their own offices. And we've seen for a while now local authorities kind of trying to offer incentives for doctors to move to their areas, sometimes like the municipality will provide a house. Yeah, often I, you know, cycle through little French villages and there'll be a big sign out the front say, you know, we're looking for a médecin uh, libéral, médecin généraliste to, to work in the village. Like, I, I see frequent appeals, but the government can't just send someone there. No, no, exactly. It's not like an allocation. It just is up to doctors. Doctors essentially are self-employed small businesses. So it's up to them where they set up their business, just the same as it would be like for a butcher or a bookshop or something. The government did back in 2019 increase the number of GP training places, but obviously fully training a doctor takes quite a long time so we won't really see the results of that just yet. So what Francois Braun was talking about when I met him this week was giving regional authorities extra powers to come up with local solutions so what he said to us is that a medical desert in Paris is not the same as one in Lozère which is one of France's most sparsely populated rural areas and so the solutions should not be the same either which you know is is fair enough but we didn't really get a lot of specifics as to what that actually means. One example he did give was from the northern suburbs of Marseille which had a severe shortage 
shortage of doctors. There were basically no generalists in that area. So the hospital set up its own doctor's office that employed several GPs as salaried employees. Now, to us Anglo-Saxons, as the minister insisted on referring to us, that might sound pretty normal and pretty unexceptional. But in terms of French G- how French GPs work, I think it's actually quite groundbreaking to have like salaried GPs paid for by a hospital. So that might be something they can roll out in other areas, particularly cities. I don't think it would really work for the rural areas. And the other proposal is to move to more sort of health centre style facilities, which is like a single building where you might get four or five doctors working together and perhaps also a nurse or a midwife. Again, that seems pretty normal to us from Anglo-Saxon countries, and they do exist in France already. But it seems like France is moving more towards that model because apparently part of the reasons that becoming a generaliste is not attractive to medicine graduates is the idea of sort of working alone and having to do all your own admin, as French GPs traditionally do. So when I lived in the southwest, my GP, he just had his office in the ground floor of his house. He didn't have a secretary, so you just rang up and it was him who answered the phone and was like looking at the diary going, yeah, yeah, coming on Monday. He just had like a, a petty cash box on his desk. So when you paid for your appointment, he like scraped some coins together out of that and gave you a change. And that is actually pretty normal for French doctors, although these days you kind of see more moving into purpose-built surgeries and offering things like online consultations and card payments. But ultimately, I don't think there is a quick fix here. Mm, interesting. I think this is a good time to bring in our politics expert, John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. I asked John about the French health service and in particular this problem about medical deserts. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting question. You know, just where I am, which is a pretty rural part of Normandy, you know, it's kind of a long way to a big town from here, 30 or 40 kilometres to a big town. The nearest towns all have, you know, quite a good selection of doctors. Where I go, there are three doctors in a little medical centre, which is recently built. There's another doctor in the town and there's another village nearby that has two doctors. And all the towns near me have plenty of doctors, plenty of nurses, plenty of pharmacies, which France seems to have huge numbers anyway. But just south of here in the department of the Orne, there's a real problem. And there are towns and and whole areas which are very, very short of doctors. And overall, I read uh, 600,000 people, not just people, but 600,000 people with ongoing health problems who have no uh, GP, who have no médecin traitant, as they say in in French. So there is a problem. But like in many things in France, it's very patchy. And where it works well, it's never mentioned. And where it works badly, it's mentioned a great deal. So yes, it's a problem. Yes, it's difficult to put right. But it's not a problem everywhere. John, just on the health service in general in France, how important is it to French people and French in particular. Well, it's always put at the top of the list of French concerns or personal concerns is santé before everything. So yes, it is very important. And I remember writing pieces when I came to France 20 odd years ago that France was up there, according to all international surveys, amongst the best health services in the world. And I, I, you know, in many respects, it still is pretty good. The amount of money spent per GDP on the French system is quite high. It's almost as high as the German system, which is now recognised. I think it's 12.3% in France, 12.8% in Germany. It's not much difference. A lot more than in Britain, a lot more than in Italy, uh, much less than in the US. It's a question, I think, of how the French spend their money. There are far more hospitals in France than there are in Germany, but far fewer hospital beds. How do you work that one out? Well, it's because there are lots of little hospitals around here. Each town has its own hospital. Each quite medium-sized town has its own hospital. Does the country need that many hospitals? Would it be better maybe to concentrate in bigger hospitals? centres in the bigger cities. These are the things that I think this reform you're talking about, Macron wants to look at. The other thing I think that's gone wrong in the French health system in those last 20 years, although I've been something of a supporter of a 35-hour week in France, it really did cause enormous problems in the health service. Trying to apply the 35-hour week to nurses and and other staff in hospitals especially has been a nightmare which has never been resolved. And that's one of the things, again, that Macron and the health minister are supposed to be looking at as part of this new reform. John, do you think on the whole the French have got it good and and maybe they don't realise that? 
I think that was true 20 years ago, definitely, that people would complain about the system and I would say and other people would say, just look at what the problems are elsewhere. Now there really are problems, I think, in, in France and, you know, coming through the COVID pandemic has left the system fairly exhausted. And I think there genuinely are problems that need to be addressed now. But the system in many ways works better than people think. And really, I think the real problem, for the reasons I was saying before, is a huge amount spent on the administration of the system compared to other countries, partly because it's so scattered, partly because there are so many small towns in France that have their own doctors and have their own hospitals. It means that the administration costs, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons is that um, takes up a huge amount of what's spent on health is taken, not in the frontline services of doctors and, and um, nurses, but in the administration to, to provide that service. And each week on Talking France, we like to get around the country and pick a part of the France in the news. We pick the coastline, pretty much all of the Atlantic and northern coast, actually, which is still the home to scores of Nazi World War II bunkers, which formed part of the famous Atlantic Wall. Jen, these pretty ugly concrete structures, which anyone who's been to a beach on the west or northern coast will have spotted, are causing some concern in France. Why? Well, mostly because some of these bunkers are becoming more and more of a problem for local authorities. So we all know that coastal erosion is a problem in France and across the world, but coastal erosion actually has more of an impact in many parts of France because of these bunkers, which were built along France's coastline. It's making them a bit more unsafe. So, for example, in June, an old bunker on a cliff in Pas-de-Calais fell into the ocean during a landslide, which pushed local authorities to have to block off more parts of the cliff area for safety reasons. And then a couple years ago, local authorities down in Ile de Ré set out to start getting rid of four bunkers on one of their beaches because they were creating this venturi effect on the beach, meaning that the land below them was sinking and that was accelerating the coastal erosion that was already occurring in that area. But I was thinking about bunkers because a couple weekends ago, I spent some time in Brest in Brittany. I took a short hike along the coast where I stumbled upon one. And there are thousands of these bunkers. There are actually about 8,000 of them that were built as part of Germany's Atlantic Wall, which was meant to help resist attacks from the Allies. And actually, the bunkers for the Atlantic Wall, they aren't just in France. They go all the way along the coast from Spain to Norway. But a big bulk of them were built in France, and a lot of them are still standing. Yeah, some were destroyed, some were turned into mini-museums, art projects, one or two were just left to the bats. But the majority of them stand there covered, sometimes in graffiti or full of beer cans. Why weren't they just pulled down after the war, Jen? Well, the gist of it is that they were made to be indestructible. In 2016, when local authorities went to remove those four bunkers on the beach in Ile de Ré, they discovered that the process would take at least two full weeks of full-time work to get rid of just one bunker. And some of them had walls that were over one meter thick. But honestly, the real reason that a lot of them are still standing is that in the immediate post-war period, the priority was rebuilding France's coastal cities and villages, um, many of which were destroyed during the bombing campaigns. Now, it wasn't just about the need to focus on rebuilding. There's another explanation, Jen, that you've been looking into to explain why so many were left at the end of the war. Yeah, I learned a lot about the Mur Atlantique, uh, which is what the French call the Atlantic Wall. And actually, I, I found out that For a lot of French people, it's looked back on with national shame. So in the immediate aftermath of the war and the years following, people were a bit more willing to just ignore it because for them, focusing on either getting rid of them or memorializing them, like other parts of French history, would kind of bring back this poor memory. And the reason for that national shame is mostly related to the fact that it was a lot of the French who built the wall. Approximately 15,000 French companies and tens of thousands of French workers were hired for the operation. Now, it's worth noting that France was obviously occupied during this time and that a significant number of the wall's workers were forced laborers, including people from occupied Eastern Europe and a significant number of refugees from the Spanish Civil War. 
but still a large portion of the French workers that built the Mur Atlantique chose to do so in large part because of the higher wages that were being offered at the time in comparison to the very limited work options during the war period. And the other side of it is that many of the construction companies that were involved in the process actually went on to make a profit. So understandably, in the years following the war, uh, discussing the Mur Atlantique was a bit shameful for some French people. This is a good time to bring back our expert, John Litchfield, who lives part of the year up in Normandy and knows a thing or two about World War II bunkers and the attitude of the locals towards them up there. I think they're part of the landscape, frankly, and most of them have become, a lot of them have become sort of tourist attractions. The bigger ones are, are you can you can visit, and uh, there's a sort of radar one near, near north of Caen, which is a big tourist attraction. Others, some other bigger bunkers above Omaha Beach are pretty well intact. I think it would be quite wrong to remove them. Quite very difficult as well because they were built by the Germans. You know, they were built they were built for last, and you know I can see why they were not removed after the war. A lot of Normandy was in ruins. The last thing you wanted to do was to create other ruins. All the resources had to be put in rebuilding the towns which were destroyed by the British and the Americans to a large extent, bombing that, you know, to this day cannot be justified in many cases. So, no, there's no pressure to, to remove the bunkers that remain. Some of them have kind of quietly sunk into fields here and there, and you can hardly see them. Some of them are still very prominent, even along the, the towns along the coast, the little seaside towns along the coast, north of Caen. You can walk along there or drive along there and you come across a bunker in, in amongst the uh, the seaside hotels and guest houses. And, you know, I don't think anyone complains that it's there. It's part, part of the history of the place. Each week on Talking France, we like to pick out a French personality in the news. Now, you've probably often heard the French language described as la langue du Molière, who is perhaps the French equivalent of Shakespeare. But do we know who Molière is? Emma, you're about to tell us a bit more about him. I know nothing about Molière. I must admit, I didn't know much about Molière before I started researching this bit. But I started researching this bit because this week marks the 350th anniversary since his death and there have been like, events across France because, as you say, he is widely regarded as the French Shakespeare. So, he is Jean-Baptiste Poquelin. Molière He's was... not even called Molière. No, Molière was his pen name. So, so we should call it French is the language of Jean-Baptiste Poquelin. If you want, yeah. It really roll off the tongue, does it? <laughs> Not so much, no. OK, sorry, Emma, carry on. <laughs> so, yeah, he was French, obviously. Uh, he lived between 1622 and 1678. He's kind of best known as a playwright, but he also wrote poems and ballets, and he worked as an actor. And, in fact, he had a great actor's death. He didn't quite die on stage, but he collapsed on stage during a performance of one of his own plays, and he died a few hours later, aged just 51. I think the French Shakespeare comparison is actually quite a good one because there are a lot of parallels. You know, he's definitely France's best-known writer and he's become this sort of icon of the French language. French kids all learn his work at school but if you ask a French person whether they've read or seen any of his plays recently they're likely to kind of start shuffling their feet and looking a bit shifty just as English people do when you ask them about if they've seen a Shakespeare play recently and the reason for this is basically the same that Molière was writing in the 17th century so his language is quite archaic and that's quite difficult for French people. It's particularly difficult for foreigners so it's not particularly accessible. Most modern editions will have a glossary of kind of 17th century terms in the equivalent modern French and some of the work are kind of satire on issues of the day which doesn't feel very relevant but actually there are some really great universal themes in there too and his most famous work Tartuffe uh, is about hypocrisy among people in positions of power which I think is something we can pretty much all relate to. Now Emma there is a film about Molière that perhaps we can recommend to listeners you've seen it would you recommend it? Yeah I really would I, I must admit that actually tackling some 17th century French prose is still kind of on my to-do list but I have seen the 2007 film simply called Molière which is quite loose 
loosely based on his life and it also has elements from Tartuffe, his most famous play. It's nothing too serious, it's quite slapstick and the character of Moliere himself is basically a kind of lazy slacker who just wants to seduce loads of women. It's a little bit similar to Shakespeare in Love, uh, if you've ever seen that, kind of a lighter look at the life of an uh, iconic figure. And it stars Romain Duris, who's one of those actors who kind of pops up in like every French film. Okay, Jen, do you know anything about Moliere? Uh, no, I don't. I actually mixed him up with another French playwright <laughs> recently, start, so I, yeah, I can't say that I'm a, I'm a Moliere expert at all. <laughs> he did write the play The Misanthrope. Misanthrope, is that right? Yes. Okay, that's I've heard of that. Now, I did, I did lie actually before. I do know one thing about Moliere. Go on, astonish us. Okay, I mean, you've kind of mentioned it, you kind of stole my thunder, in that he did die on stage during a performance. Is that right? He was actually playing a hypochondriac in the time. <laughs> And I had the image of like him acting out, you know, coughing on stage. He was ill at the time and nobody coming to help him because they thought he was acting. But actually, he was anything but a hypochondriac. He insisted on finishing the performance of finishing the play and he later died. But apparently he was wearing green at the time. And this is why actors and actresses are really superstitious about the colour green. They apparently think it's bad luck. And it all relates to the fact that Moliere was wearing green during his final performance. I have no idea if that is true or not. But that's what I've read. There you go. We've taught you a little bit about Moliere. Now, as I mentioned earlier, nothing is more synonymous with France than wine, and particularly Bordeaux wine. Jen, why are we talking about Bordeaux wine this week? Well, you probably don't want to sip this Bordeaux wine. <laughs> Basically, France's agriculture ministry recently announced that the country is going to spend over 160 million euros to distill surplus wine, particularly from the Bordeaux area, into industrial alcohol. So for things like cosmetics, perfume, hand sanitizer, or also for pharmaceutical needs. Actually, in 2020, when France also had a surplus of wine after the pandemic, the extra wine was also distilled for fuel for vehicles. But we're mostly talking about this right now because France's southwest region has seen both an overproduction in wine coupled with a drop in domestic consumption. And this is particularly for the more affordable brands, which has led some wine growers to have large surpluses. Jérôme Despé, the head of the FNSEA Farming Union, which represents wine growers in the region, told Le Monde that we estimate the total volume of wine to be distilled at between 2.5 to 3 million hectoliters. So basically, this is like taking over 100 Olympic swimming pools filled with surplus wine to be distilled. So quite a lot of wine. That is a lot of wine. Yeah, and one winemaker in Bordeaux told AFP that he has about 24 months of backlog in his cellars. Wow, now wine industry chiefs are understandably worried about around half a million people are estimated to work in the wine industry in France. If nothing is done, they say, between 100,000 and 150,000 jobs in the wine trade could be lost over the coming decade. Jen, some people have said that this surplus is mostly thanks to the fact that French people are actually drinking less wine overall. What's the truth in that? Well, it is true that in the past seven decades, French wine consumption has dropped by quite a lot. 70 years ago, the average French person would drink on average 130 liters a year, and now that's more like 40 liters a year. And the frequency with which people drink wine has changed too. So for example, in 1980, more than half of French adults consumed wine on a daily basis. And today, only about 10% of French adults report daily consumption of wine. But the trends surrounding wine consumption have also changed. More recently, France has 
seen a rise of non-alcoholic wines and cave uh, wine shops. And I also um, spoke with a wine expert and the co-founder of the Académie des Vins et Spiritueux, uh, Sylvain Removille. And he told me that even though in the last 20, 30 years, less French people drink wine on a daily basis, they have become more likely to drink in larger quantities, which is especially true for the younger generation. And then on top of that, beer consumption has actually been on the rise for people aged 25 to 35 in France. And according to the National Committee of Wine Professions, it now makes up about a third of the alcoholic beverage market share. But all of that to say, the French taste for wine is not necessarily going away, but it is beginning to look different from what it used to look like. Emma, is this all types of wine? Just red, rosé, white? What about those two? Yeah, there was quite an interesting statistic from France's General Association of Wine Production. They found that red wine sales dropped by 15% last year, but white and rosé saw much lower declines, around 3 and 4%. And there's a few theories put forward for that. Some people are saying like the longer, hotter summers means like the, the seasons where you're more likely to be drinking white and rosé are longer. Some people are saying it's just changing fashions. But one um, interesting theory was that French people are eating less meat and red wine kind of traditionally pairs with meat. The sort of the wine etiquette says that you would usually have red wine with a meal, usually with meat or with cheese. Whereas if you're drinking wine on its own, you're perhaps more likely to have a white or a rosé, especially at apéro time. Although I must say this is one French wine rule that I regularly ignore, especially in the winter. I like a nice glass of red if I'm meeting friends for drinks in a cafe and I haven't been stoned by the French wine police so far. So Emma, I kind of got the impression you've broken every French wine rule there is. There's a French saying... If you see someone on a terrace in France drinking wine at 5pm, the chances are she or he's a tourist. And if you see someone drinking red wine for an apéro, the chances are it's Emma. (laughs) But anyway, now look, these famous French wine etiquette and rules, there are a lot of rules to follow and I've been pulled up on them a few times when you live in France and you hang around with locals. You do get to know them. But let's look at a few and find out whether people really do stick to them. Jen, give us some examples. Okay, so the first example is that under no circumstances can you pair red wine with fish. And this is sort of myth, sort of fact. It is fair to say that the vast majority of the time, this rule will be respected and you will be told only white wine with fish. But there are some exceptions to be made. For more meaty fish like trout or tuna, you might actually be able to get away with a light red wine. In these cases, you'll probably be advised to go for a red that's more on the tonic side, like a Pinot Noir. And then the next one is champagne should always be drunk in a coupe or flute. Okay, so this is mostly fact, but your objectives with your champagne matter. So you should stick with the flute if you want your champagne to be bubbly and fizzy, but if your goal is actually to taste all of the rich flavors in champagne, then you might actually opt for a different glass. Ella Lister, a wine expert and taster for Figaro Vin, recommended to the French newspaper Le Figaro that flavor connoisseurs tend to opt for a tulip glass or even a regular um, wine glass, typically one meant for white wine that has a wide bowl at the bottom but narrows at the top for champagne. It's also best, obviously, to go with stemware. And part of the reason is that champagne is meant to be served chilled and so having your hands on the glass can warm it up. And talking of warming it up, when Jen and I were researching this article, I did look into one of the more persistent and slightly mad myths, which is that the coupe style of champagne glass, that's the, the shallow glass rather than the tall flute, was modelled on the breast of Marie Antoinette, the guillotined French queen. Get out of Um, here. (laughs) 
Go on then, carry on, I'm interested. Um, yeah, it's a myth that's mostly ascribed to uh, Marie Antoinette, but also sometimes to Madame de Pompadour, who was the mistress of Louis XVI. But it is completely fictitious. Oh. I know, we, we first see the sort of coupe-style champagne glasses arrive in France in about the mid-16th century, so at least 100 years before Marie Antoinette arrived on the scene. And the story seems to have come about in the years after the Revolution, and they reckon it's probably linked to Marie Antoinette's reputation for extravagance. But like a lot of the stories about her, it's completely untrue. And she also never said qu'il mange le brioche or let them eat cake or anything even remotely similar to that. And actually, if you've ever seen a coupe glass, one of the first things you will notice about it is that it looks nothing at all like a boob. So I've got to say, I think this this rumour was started by someone who'd never actually seen a breast in real life. Fair enough. Shame. Great story. Uh, Emma, any more wine myths for us? Yeah. Um, one that I was interested to research was that the, uh, the idea that the wine bottles that have the largest dimple in the base so that you can fit your thumb into it are the best wines. And I must admit, I believed this until I started researching this article. I was told this by some English bloke who really sounded like he knew what he was talking about. So I believed him, but I should not have done because there's nothing in it. In the base of a wine bottle, there's usually a, yeah, a sort of cavity or a dimple and they vary in depth. Like some you can fit your whole thumb in, some of them are quite shallow. But it's really nothing to do with good wines. Different regions of French wines use slightly different style of bottles. Different vineyards use different types and the size of the dimple in the bottom really has no bearing on whether the wine is good or not all right okay i only realized that bordeaux wines and burgundy wines as you've alluded to come in totally different bottles exactly yeah it's more to do if it's to do with anything it's to do with the region of where the wine comes from and a lot of people debate you know burgundy bordeaux which is better but really like they're both good it depends on your personal taste and what about this idea that wine should be stored lying down that one is actually true there is some basis in that so even for those of us who don't own an enormous cellar to keep our wine collections in um it's a good idea to invest in a wine rack and the reason for that is that you want to keep the wine in contact with the cork because you want to keep the cork moist. If the cork dries out over a long period of time, then it can become brittle. Oxygen can get into the wine and that can alter the wine, oxidise it or even turn it bad. So having your wine lying down is a good thing to do. Interesting. Now, so just some of the drinking etiquette when it comes to wine. I always get told off for when I'm opening a bottle of wine, you men have very carefully cut round the very top of that kind of foil around the thing. I just yank it off and pull the cork out as quick as I can. Apparently that's a bit uncouth. Also, when you're pouring it, you men have pour it with the label up so that when you kind of you know put the bottle back straight it doesn't drip down and ruin the label but I mean look I have been pulled up on these a few times Jen any, have you been pulled up on any kind of wine breaking rules that you've committed oh gosh well I have to say I've broken the cork in half a couple of times that's just because you can't open a bottle Jen. yeah because I <laughs> But it happened once when we had some French friends over and I was like, oh, well, it's fine. Like, I'll just use the strainer as I pour the wine into the, <laughs> oh, into the glasses. And I was very much shamed by the French you people. You poured wine through a sieve yeah. in front of French guests. <laughs> oh, dear, dear. And they're from That's Bordeaux. as bad as you admitting you put baguette in the microwave to warm it up. <laughs> I've got to say, Ben, I think you've been hanging out with some very fancy French people. Some of these tips are just... It's just, yeah. just old-fashioned French wine drinking culture. Also, this one that women shouldn't pour their own glass. Emma, what do you make of that one? <laughs> well, I say to that what I say to everything else in the patriarchy, which is dégage patriarchy. I can't imagine you sitting around the table waiting for a, a bloke to fill your wine glass up. The other one is that you should wait for the host to kind of fill your wine glass. That's, you know, that's probably a bit more just politeness but I kind of never wait for that I just kind of grab the bottle and fill my wine glass up yeah I mean you normally don't bother with a glass really do you thank you guys for clearing up a few of those wine myths 
Now it's time for our reader question. And this week, it's a very simple one, but it's one that I'm sure a lot of our listeners and readers are interested in. How much money do you need to retire in France? Over to you guys. Yeah, so we're talking about visas here. Obviously, you will need money to fund your lifestyle in France and how much you need depends on how fancy you want your lifestyle to be and how much expensive wine you want to buy. But if you're from a non-EU country, you will need a visa to move to France. And certain visa types, uh, including the visitor visa, which is what most retirees get, actually have minimum income or savings requirements. So you need to know about these. If you don't intend to work in France... For like if you're retiring here, you basically have to prove that you're not going to be a burden to the French state and you can support yourself financially. And there are some guidelines amounts on this, which are based on the French minimum wage, known as le SMIC. Now, the minimum wage is obviously quite regularly reviewed. And because of the rate of inflation, it went up quite a bit in January. So this affects how much money you will need in order to secure your French visa. So minimum wage at present is €1,353.07 per month after tax. So if you have income, for example, a pension, it would need to be at least €1,353 per month. If you don't have income and you intend to live off your savings in France, then you have to have enough in your bank account to cover €1,353 for every month of your visa. So if you had a one-year visa, you would need to have €16,236 in your bank account. And if you don't have either income or savings, but your partner or spouse does then you can take this into consideration, but then your partner needs to demonstrate that they have enough for two. So basically they need €2,706.14 per month after taxes, or they need €32,472 in savings. So we should kind of just say that visa applications are decided on an individual basis. So it's possible for other factors to be taken into account, such as if you have a house with a fully paid off mortgage. But these are the guideline amounts that you kind of need if you're looking to get a visitor visa to France. There you have it. Really crucial info there and you can find much more about the money and the cost of retiring in France on our website thelocal.fr. Finally before we bring this episode and indeed this series to a close we have some life hacks for you. Emma, do you want to start us off? Yeah, mine's an event, actually, which uh, which starts this weekend and goes for a week. And it is the Paris Salon de l'Agriculture. It's a farm show and it's just a really fun day out. So if you're anywhere near Paris or you could travel here, I really recommend it. It's farmers from all over France. Like they bring their prize winning cattle, pigs, sheep up to the capital. They have competitions. There are lots of food producers. So, you know, you can get free samples of like French cheese, French sausage, French wine, lots of French wine producers and the um, the food is all organised into sections by region so it's a nice way to kind of test some of the uh, of the regional foods in France it's a really good day out you can see like the best cow in the whole of France which is pretty exciting and it's also a really good atmosphere especially on the last weekend because like the, the farmers who've come from all over France are quite convivial by then so it's kind of like a party as well Indeed recommend it and a visit to the Salon d'Agriculture Jen before I bring you in my tip of the week I'm going back to wine when you buy wine bottles you'll often see medals on them you know this wine's won a certain medal do you go for those wines guys Mm, i have to say no (laughs) i go for the ones that are on special offer (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) apparently we should take medals as a hint but not a guarantee of a good wine but there is one the concours general that's the one in paris that's meant to be the best one in france that you could probably respect more but anyway if you see bottles with medals on don't just grab it it's meant to be a hint 
not a guarantee of a beautiful wine. Jen. So my tip is actually if you want to start eating more French food, particularly if you don't live in France, then you should buy a French cookbook. Now, this might seem kind of obvious, but I would say buy a French cookbook that's written in French. So a French cookbook that's meant for French people. And it's a great way to like test your language skills, uh, to make yourself read a little bit more in French, but also it's a really good way to kind of understand how French cooking works and to try your hand at making the dishes yourself. It's something that I've been testing out since I was gifted one this uh, Christmas, and it's been a really nice way to familiarize myself more with French dishes. Was this your partner who gifted you this cookbook? Is this like a subtle hint? No, this is his aunt. (laughs) Fantastic, Jen. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, John. That brings us, guys, to the end of this episode and this series. Thank you to all our listeners who've joined us. Now, we'll be back after a short break in a couple of weeks with more news and big talking points from France. Don't forget, if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to the podcast, we'd be very grateful. Always feel free to get in touch with us at news at thelocal.fr. And finally, remember, we are subsidised by members. This podcast is only possible thanks to our members. If you'd like to join, you can find out all the latest offers on our website. We'll be back with more in a couple of weeks. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.